Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Hi, it's Heard Tell Show. It's a Monday, folks. Let's get after it. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Hope you and yours, wherever you are across the street around the world, had a great weekend. I know we did. Uh, my daughter graduated high school, so we did a lot of family stuff. Hope you and yours are well. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. And we got a lot to cover, a lot of noise in the news media to turn down today. Uh, Going to be talking, uh, we got some polling now on whether or not the abortion debate with the Dodds decision pending and with the leak of the Alito draft of that decision, is it affecting the polls? What's going on with the midterm elections? What's it going with people's opinions on abortion? We'll cover that story in just a little bit uh also at the end of the program great charity story we love charity stories in the program we love food stories we love supporting local media we're going to do all three of those in one story at the end of the program please don't miss that as folks found a cool way to get a charitable organization going to remember a long lost friend great guest today jeremy horpendahl that's dr jeremy horpendahl he's a professor of economics university of central arkansas beautiful conway arkansas for those of us that got stationed at little rock know exactly where that is going to talk some inflation going to talk about some practical numbers though like what can you as just a consumer like me note when these numbers start coming out what should we listen to what should we pay attention to what's noise in the news cycle what's something we should actually really pay attention to and listen to when we're trying to discern economic news out of the news cycle and out of the campaign season jeremy horpendahl on the program today another great young voices contributor can't wait to bring that interview to you uh but first let's start with the big news over the weekend tragic horrible Awful news. The shooting in Buffalo, New York, 10 dead, 13 wounded. A lot of parts to this story, but I want to start with the human part before we get into all the who, what, where, when, and how. Uh, we will continue our policy here. We will not name the perpetrator that did this great evil on this community. His name does not deserve to be mentioned. That's probably what he wanted in the first place. We're not going to do that. What we are going to do, we're going to talk about some other names like Aaron Salter. Aaron Salter was the former police officer who was the guard at the top supermarket. Uh, he fought with the assailant, this evil man who did this. He hit him center mass with a round, uh, but he had body armor on. It did not have the effect. Aaron Salter was killed trying to defend his community and his friends and family because that's what this community was in that he was 55 years old, former police officer. We can talk about Ruth Whitfield. She was 86 and died in the attack. What about Pearl Young? She was 77 and died in this attack. Celise Cheney, she was 65. She was a breast cancer survivor and was killed at the supermarket by this evil, wicked human being that did this. Roberta Drury, 
She was only 32 years old. She was in Buffalo helping out her brother who had just had a bone marrow transplant. Hayward Patterson was 67. Uh, another person over and over again on this list of people listed as what church they went to, what they did in the community over and over and over again. Margus Morris, Andrea McNeil, Geraldine Talley, Catherine Macy. And then there's the three survivors, Zare Goodman, Jennifer Warrington, and Christopher Braden. They're injured, but it looks like they will survive. Why do we start with their names? Because when we do these mass shootings or any kind of major news event like this, there's two narratives that immediately happen. One is the tragedy of it, and the other is the why and the application of who did it, why they did it, and how do we slam that into the ongoing news narratives. This is, of course, natural for us to do. It's hard to get our head around something just so inherently evil as what it appears this perpetrator did, where he marinated himself in racist stuff and in propaganda and in the worst parts of hatred that you can find online and in other places. And he marinated himself in it. He stewed in it by his own admission in his manifesto. He took the COVID lockdowns to sit and stew and fill his mind and heart and soul with hatred. And then he drove a long distance with a weapon to target specifically this community, this black community in Buffalo, New York, this specific area that he researched. That's just flat evil and wicked. Now, people are going to try to apply that to a lot of different things, and it's a discussion we have to have. So setting aside the motives of this evil, wicked man that we will get through the investigation and the forthcoming trial, what's the bigger application to this? Why do these things keep happening? first thing we want to do is try to have some kind of law passed or policy passed that would prevent this from ever happening again. I've already heard local leaders and politicians and other folks saying, well, we need to do something to make sure this never happens again. Well, there's no such thing as assurances. Of course, there's things we need to address, but you can't do that because the problem here isn't a legislative one. It's one of the human heart. It's one of a failing of morality and basic human decency. It occurs to me that when we deal with things like this and we cover them as news stories and we cover them as events and they get political and I understand all that, what we've failed to do over and over again in cases like this is to bear witness. Now, that phrase has a specific meaning. It doesn't mean just watching what's going on. It doesn't mean just observing. It means remembering something and observing it and taking it to heart so that you are proof that it actually happened. Think about Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander in Europe, ordering as many troops as possible to go through the concentration camps because he said there's going to come a day people are going to say this didn't happen. He wanted them to bear witness. When it comes to issues of race, when it comes to issues of violence, and especially when it comes to issues of racial violence in the history of our country, far too many of us have failed to bear witness. We know it exists. We know what the history of it is. We know the implications when it happens in the present day, but we failed to bear witness. We failed to pass down the knowledge and that living history and that verbal history of this is why we have to talk about this because it's going to keep happening. We failed to bear witness to prove that it happened. And too many people want to pretend like there isn't racial issues in our country. And they want to pretend when people do bring it up, that they can excuse it away because this, that, or the other political reason or cultural reason or whatever other reason they want to bring it up. 
there's great evil in our land, not just because of policies, not just because of history, but because evil comes out of the human heart, especially when it's been warped with hatred, hatred like racism, hatred like jealousy of their fellow man, hatred that they self-impose by dumping garbage into their own minds and thoughts. That's something we also have to bear witness to, that there's evil among us, and it's not going to be legislated away, and it's not going to be policied away, and it sure as hell isn't going to be wished away. We need to bear witness when there's evil amongst us. We need to call it evil, and then we need to find out what we can do to prevent it beforehand. And a lot of that prevention, if there is any at all, is going to come from saying the path you are starting down is evil. Prejudice is a wide spectrum before it gets to something like racism. But you need to stop and nip it in the bud as soon as you notice wherever on the spectrum you are on things like that. Because by this shooter's own admission, he marinated in it. He stewed in it. He filled his heart with it over a period of time. And we see what happens. Bear witness. So that hopefully we don't do this again. But I'm afraid we will. More heard tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. A lot of people still talking about abortion. Of course, we had the uh, Dodds brief from Justice Alito that quote unquote leaked that got out and fired up this debate even further while we wait for the actual Supreme Court decision to come down. We got some polling data. Uh, this is one of those things where the headline goes one way, but the real story goes the other. Let's turn down the noise on it. Uh, NBC News. Uh, this is a poll that they did. The headline screams support for abortion rights hits a new high as midterm outlook is grim for the Democrats. Um, reading from the piece, this is by Mark Murray. Support for abortion rights has reached a record high and nearly two thirds of Americans oppose the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. According to a new national NBC News poll conducted after the leak of the draft opinion, important to note this. So this is after the news cycle that we've had about the Dodds brief. That would strike down the constitutional right to abortion. What's more, the survey finds abortion climbing up the list of issues that Americans believe are most important and that Democratic interest in the upcoming midterms has increased since there. Do you feel the butt coming? There's a butt coming. It's a really big butt. You ready for it? But reading from NBC News, the poll also found that this Supreme Court draft opinion hasn't substantially altered the overall political environment heading into November's elections. With inflation in the economy remaining the public's top issues, President Joe Biden's job approval rating fell below 40% and a whopping 75% of Americans saying the country is heading in the wrong direction. It is the fourth straight NBC News poll with the wrong track number higher than 70% and the fifth time in the poll's 34-year history when the wrong track number hit 75% Greater, the other two times, 2008's Great Recession and 2013's Government Shutdown Theater. Uh, this is something we talked about before. We've had almost 50 years by the time we get to next spring of the abortion debate since Roe v. Wade. These trenches are dug deep. They are hardened. They're not going to change. 
One of the reasons that abortion is really, really loud in the media and it's really important for fundraising and engagement among the political parties, but it doesn't actually move a whole lot of numbers electorally is because there's no great mass of people that do not have an opinion on abortion already. There's no big group of undecided. Pretty much everybody has a pretty hardened opinion on abortion. And the fact of the matter is the fact that this is going to come out isn't going to sway a lot of people because they've already made up their minds. Now it's going to be louder. The reason like the polling said it's going up in the polls is a matter of importance is because it wasn't even in the polling. When AP did their issue poll back in February, it didn't even register. Other polling back in March had it in eighth place among issues for midterm voters. Abortion just wasn't that high on the list. So it's raising up the list. It wasn't even on the list prior. I don't think the abortion debate is really going to affect the midterm elections that much other than it's going to increase engagement and fundraising against people that are already very passionate about this issue. So keep in mind, we heard a lot of noise when the abortion brief first came out. The Alito draft first came out. This can change everything. If you're the Democratic Party, no, abortion is not going to save you from the midterms. Now, there's a big caveat to all this. Either side, the Democrats or the Republicans, could misread this situation and really overreact. Both sides overreacting can change this metric a little bit. But overall, on the medium, this is probably not going to affect the election much, if at all. More Hurtel right after this. Okay, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk a little economics. We're going to go down to Arkansas, University of Central Arkansas. That's in Conway. Just go north on 40 up from Little Rock Spell. Just kind of veer to the left real subtle-like. You'll come right to it. Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, another of our Young Voices contributor and economist. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you, Andrew? Hey, really appreciate the time. Um, I've got to ask you, though, before we get into kind of, because, you know, economists, it's, it's a little wonky. It's a little nerdy. It's a lot of numbers and stuff. Explain to me Homer Simpson buying a home in the 90s and how that compares to today, because I think that's actually kind of a fun way to address some of the topics we're getting into today. Yeah, absolutely. So I I wrote a a little blog post about this month or two ago um, uh, in response to a lot of people uh, on Twitter and and Reddit uh, saying that, well, the Simpsons could afford a house in the 90s, but now a typical family, you know, with one earner could not. So and they would just you know, show a picture of the Simpsons house. You know, here's what a family used to be able to afford. So I went through the data and said, you know, there's data that uh, uh, the Census Bureau collects every year on what does a family with one earner earn? What's the median price of a home? So I just compared the two over time. And when you do that comparison, uh, actually the amount of your income you would have to spend on a home today, uh, or at least with the most recent data up through 2020, maybe it's a little different today as prices have gone way up, but at least you know, through most of the time period the Simpsons has been on the air, uh, the, the amount of someone's income you would need to, to buy a home has been going down over time if you take into account not only the, the price of the home, but also interest rates and so on. Um, so uh, just, you know, something economists like to do, let's, let's here's, a, here's a claim someone makes about the world. Let's look and dig into the data and see if that matches up with, with the reality from the best data we have. See, this comes to something that when we when we have economists on or we're talking economics on the program, we keep coming back to this. 
isn't one of the real big problems with this is everybody's perception of what the economy is is so different because like the simpsons even underneath all the silliness that's a very stereotypical it's a suburban two-story house got a husband wife two kids that's a very specific economic social class so even in something like the simpsons there's a perspective bias there when you start talking about well they could do that and i can't how much of the problem in our discourse on economics is that we just don't deal with we have this big diverse country which means we have a very diverse economy with a lot of different people in a lot of different situations yeah that's exactly right and i think you need to know that when you're looking at any data or numbers, what does it actually mean? So just to give you one example, uh, there's a, a, a number called the median household income. If you follow economic data, you see this all the time, you know, median household income, how's it changed over time? Well, when you, when you hear household, you probably think of a family like the Simpsons, right? Married couple, maybe one of them was working, a few kids, but a household includes uh, lots of other situations, such as any two people living together that are unmarried. So two college roommates are a household. Uh, you know, a, a family with eight kids is a household. So, you know, when we look at a number like that, it's, it's really important to give it the context so we can see, you know, what are we talking about? And then if we want to make a comparison to say, how is a family of, of this you know, structure doing? How are they doing compared to a similar family in the past? got to try to zero in on the best data to make that comparison, which isn't always easy. Sometimes that data might not exist, but uh, that, that's what we try to do as economists is, is hopefully find the best data. Yeah. And one of those data sets, since you just brought it up, let's talk about it for a second. One of those data sets that are changing is we, we tend to do generational bias when we talk about data sets like that, because every, everybody wants to talk about millennials. Everybody wants to talk about boomers. Mm -hmm. And of course, the boomers aging out is a huge part of the economy right now. Uh, and the millennials moving into their 40s now. But something that we've been seeing in a lot of reporting, I don't know if it's showing up in the data yet, but we're kind of starting to see more multi-generational homes and things like that, or households, I should say, multi-generational households. Those sorts of things have a lot of economic uh, ripple effects, don't they, when people start doing those sorts of things instead of just their traditional, oh, you're 20, go to college, get married, go buy a house. Yeah, absolutely. The, the you know, and type of family, if you think about multi-generational, that could mean many things, right? One thing it might mean is that, well, maybe grandma is living with you. And that means you don't have to pay for daycare because grandma can do that. Or multi-generational might mean you have a, an elderly parent who needs a lot of care, uh, in which case that'll be a big burden on the home. So, you know, these types of things are, are something which has always exists, but I think there's a lot more households of this nature than in the past. So we always need to make sure that we know what we're looking at and, you know, Certainly in some of those situations where you have a multi-generational household, that might mean that it's, it's harder to make ends meet. In other cases, it might mean it's easier. Again, maybe an elderly parent is taking care of the kids. Maybe they're actually still working and they're contributing to the household income. So when we look at data, we want to know, you know how many people are in the household. We want to at least adjust for, adjust for that. How many earners are in the household, right? All these things uh, can, can drastically alter both how much income they have as well as what their expenses are, which is ultimately what we really want to think about. Yeah. And uh, J Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl joining us on Herd Tell. Uh, as you're well aware, I'm sure, because you teach students, uh, a lot of people don't really pay attention to economics, but one <laughs> economic number they always pay attention to, you just mentioned it, when they consume goods, when they have to pay for goods, that means inflation, that means gas prices. Those are the two things that consistently break through. Uh, just turn the noise down for us for a minute. What are you looking at when you look at the buzzwords of inflation and gas prices in the social media realm or the news realm, 
what are you looking at and what are you trying to tell people like, okay, that's, that's the term. And yes, this is happening, but here's what we actually need to be dealing with. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's obviously a lot of talk about inflation right now. Everyone's feeling it in lots of different ways. Uh, When you see a number such as the consumer price index, which is the most commonly used measure of inflation that is used uh, out there, both in the media and often by economists as well. Uh, You know, a number like that, I think, is is useful as a as a first cut at, you know, how are things right now? How might inflation now compared to a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago? Uh, But I think it's always useful to kind of drill down into that number and to see what what's causing it. Right. So if the price of, you know, we say that the the consumer price index is up eight and a half percent or so over the past year. You know, what does that mean? Does that mean everything's up eight and a half percent? Well, no, it does not. Uh, some things are up more than that, right? If you look at the price of a lot of different kinds of meat, they're up 15 to 20%. Uh, but other things might be going up not quite as fast. So if we're thinking about how does inflation affect a typical person or a typical household, uh, we need to know what sorts of things uh, is that household consuming. And everyone doesn't have the same consumption pattern, right? If we look at, say, you know, my industry, college tuition, right? This is a number of people follow a lot. Uh, well, most people aren't paying college tuition for, you know, 40 years, right? People are paying college tuition for five or six years, or if they go to grad school, maybe up to 10 years. They might be paying off the student loans from those, you know, over a longer period of time. Uh, but for most people, you know, what happened to the price of college tuition last month is not really relevant to, to their budget, right? So we want to know what sorts of numbers are relevant. Uh, certainly the price of housing is relevant, right? For most households, this is going to be 20, 30, or 40% of their budget is going to go to housing. Again, housing is so varied across this country, both in how much it costs and how much it's increasing, right? Some, some markets are really hot now and prices might be up 40 or 50% compared to before the pandemic. Others have seen more mild increases, uh, but we want to know how's that affecting people's budgets? How does that relate to, importantly, how much have their wages gone up? This is the other important thing to remember about inflation is that, well, yes, prices are going up, but if your wages are going up just as much, it's not as much of a, of a, of a burden on you. Uh, but if your wages aren't going up as fast as inflation, that's what really matters to you, right? I mean, let's say inflation was 100% every year. Now, that would seem crazy and a totally different reality from where we are now. But if your wages were going up 200% every year, uh, for you as a worker who's, who's seeing those wage increases, 100% inflation is no big deal if your wages are doing better than that. But even at just, you know, a mild rate of inflation, 5%, uh, if your wages are only going up 1%, then that really does hurt you. So we need to compare these two things and we need to think about how does it uh, look for whatever type of household we want to analyze, whether it's, you know, millennials, they're just kind of getting into the workforce, buying their first home, whether it's the boomers who are just getting into retirement or the next generation, Gen Z or whatever we're going to eventually call them, you know, they're, they're just graduating from college. You know, I teach college and And we just had our graduation on Saturday and you've got a couple thousand kids that are now being kind of dumped into the workforce. You know, how are they going to do? You know, we want to know all the prices that matter to each of those different types of of households is very different. So one number like the CPI is is a useful one to look at, but it should never be kind of the final word of what's going on with inflation. Yeah. And another one of those numbers, uh, Dr. Jeremy Horvidal, an economist joining us on Hertel, another one of those numbers that it gets a lot of play in the media but it affects people greatly. It really helps some folks. It's really going to hurt other folks. Uh, Talk about interest rates for just a second, because that's a number. Some people are going to love that it's going up. I know a lot of economists have been almost screaming that it needs to go up, but that also greatly affects a lot of people in very, very real day-to-day, almost week-to-week, every paycheck kind of ways, doesn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about interest rates, we always have to realize just like prices, there are lots of different interest rates, right? So there's an interest rate uh, that you might earn from a savings account. Now that's very low today. There's interest rates you're going to pay, such as an interest rate uh, on buying a new house, right? If you buy a new house today, the interest rate you're going to pay is very much higher than it would have been if you bought a house a year ago. Uh, but there's also interest rates uh, that the Federal Reserve Bank is going to loan money to banks at, sometimes on a very short-term basis. Uh, so that's, that's actually a key interest rate, what the Federal Reserve Bank is doing uh, with the interest rate that they are going to be setting in markets for banks, essentially lending money to each other. As that interest rate changes, as they increase that interest rate, that's going to have effects that are going to go across the economy. Right? So as the Fed starts raising interest rates that they set, that's going to affect things like mortgage rates, and it's going to affect things like the, how much you're going to be paid on a savings account. Um, so we need to think about, you know, why is the Fed doing this, right? And as you said, why are some economists finally cheering that they're doing this? Uh, the reason for that is one of the main policy tools the Federal Reserve Bank has to get inflation down, now that inflation is kind of out of control, uh, is to raise that interest rate. That's one of the main ways they have of impacting the economy. Uh, it's not the only way they have, and there's, there's other things Congress could potentially do. But as far as the Federal Reserve Bank, that's the main thing they're going to do uh, to try to both you know, when you're in a slow economy, they're going to lower that interest rate to try to speed up the economy in a sense. Um, but when prices start going up, they're going to then raise that interest rate to try to slow down the rate of money growth, which then should slow down uh, how much prices are going up. Uh, but there's, it's a very, you know, kind of challenging thing to do. There's a kind of a long lag between when they change interest rates and when it'll actually affect prices. It's not an instantaneous thing, even though it might instantaneously affect mortgage rates. Um, so these two things, you know, you mentioned interest rates, it's very much connected to the prices we were just talking about earlier. Yeah, talking to Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, an economist out at the University of Central Arkansas in beautiful Conway, Arkansas. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to drill down on one of those prices, gas prices, and some things that have been going on both in the administrative and in the social uh, discussion field about how those things work. Also want to talk to him about those college kids getting ready to come out because we do that every year and we don't talk about them enough. More economics with our friend, Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, right after this on Herd Tech. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive. And that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com slash build. That's chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.
Welcome back to Hertel. We are talking economics. Our friend Dr. Jeremy Horvendahl is going to explain some of this big number, big math stuff to me like I'm five, so even I can understand it. Uh, here's one that folks get wrong a lot, even though they're invested in it because it hits them directly daily. Gas prices, you've been doing some writing about this in Real Clear uh, Policy. Real quick, though, just so we have our nomenclature right, we talk about it, but break it down. What actually affects gas prices? Why is that what we call a lagging indicator? No, it doesn't just what happened today doesn't show up at the pump tomorrow. This is stuff from six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago. Just real quick in a nutshell so that we have the right terminology. What is gas prices actually reflecting? Yeah, that's that's a really important thing to think about, right? Like, where does this number come from? We see it at the pump, right? We don't, and not just at the pump, we see it as we drive by a gas station, right? It's posted everywhere, right? So everyone's very keenly aware of this and it certainly affects people's budgets. Um, you know, economists, of course, love to talk about supply and demand, right? And I think that both of those factors are important here. Uh, number one is there is coming out of the pandemic as, as most countries are now, uh, there's a huge increase in demand for all sorts of things, but especially for traveling, right? Both by car, uh, by airplane. Uh, and those are two industries which are gonna be purchasing a lot of gasoline. It's necessary for them uh, to uh, have those uh, moving forward, of course. So what that means is that part of what's going on uh, is that people are just wanting to buy a lot more. But that's also hitting up to the other half of it that economists like to talk about, <clears throat> and that is the supply, right? So there's the supply of gasoline, uh, which is certainly being affected by the events in Ukraine, uh, as well as countries reacting to that, to that war by uh, either embargoing Russian imports or other things related to that. So that's certainly a part of it. But gas prices had been going up uh, long before that began, uh, going up throughout most of, of last year of 2021. Uh, so what other factors might there be? And here's where I think the, the, the essay you mentioned I wrote for Real Clear Policy really I tried to explain this in, in, in a pretty simple way, uh, is that you know, when you have this increase in demand, uh, what we would normally expect for, for most markets is an increase in supply, right? As people demand more, the price goes up, and then there should be more oil put on the market, which eventually turns into more gasoline, and the prices then should come down, which get back to some sort of equilibrium uh, as that happens. But this doesn't happen instantaneously, right? You can't instantly just suddenly find more oil or, or create more gasoline. There's a long production process that's involved in both extracting the oil, finding new oil. Certainly when the price of oil goes up, uh, there are reserves of oil that weren't profitable to extract before that now are. Uh, but again, there's a, there's a time lag. So what's been kind of building up in the you know, past year as we've been coming out of, of the pandemic in the US and, and other countries are as well, is that we've had a big increase in demand, uh, but the, the supply side takes a long time to catch up and then in the middle of that is when you have the Ukraine war coming on, uh, coming online. And then that just kind of really just, just topples it over, right? There's uh, wherever we'd be getting the new supply from, there's now just less oil available in the entire global market. And so that just really uh, then kind of, you know, right in February and March, prices just started skyrocketing, right? I think in a few weeks, prices at the pump went up by a dollar a gallon. And it was just a really dramatic increase in a short amount of time. But that was the buildup of a lot of things which have been happening in this very weird economy we have right now, post-pandemic or kind of still in the pandemic, that, uh, that, that all that's kind of coming together. And then consumers end up seeing it at the pump, right? So 
I think maybe next we'll talk about, you know, what is there anything we could do about that, right? There's a lot of a lot of people suggesting things we can do, but that's that's kind of the, the basics of you know what's what I think is going on with that market right now. Yeah. And you start talking about things like price control. We've seen some op-eds, we see some talking heads discussing it. We've even heard it from some of the White House staff folks. Um, not in that terminology, but that's what they're talking about when they're talking about manipulating the price. Here's the problem. Uh, we've seen this movie. We know about the gas shortages in the 70s. That got hung around Carter's neck. But the part of that story folks don't talk about is a lot of the mess that Carter was dealing with was actually Nixon instituted price controls on a whole bunch of stuff before him in the 60s. We have a history of this in the United States of America at, with price controls. You're the economist. You explain it to me. That history is not a good one, correct? Yeah, that's right. So <clears throat> Like you said, there have been some people that have been saying that, well, one thing we could do perhaps in some markets is institute price controls of various sorts to try to bring down certain prices like gasoline. Uh, the problem with that is that doesn't solve any of the problems. So all the problems I mentioned that are causing prices to go up, the price control doesn't solve any of those problems. So if we were to put in a, you know, Congress were to you know, wake up today and pass a law saying that the most you can charge for gasoline is whatever it was a year ago, right? Realizing different markets or different prices. Arkansas is different from California. Uh, but, uh, you know, if Congress said you got to charge the prices that they existed a year ago, what would that mean? Well, none of the underlying reality has changed about more people wanting gasoline, about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, what you're essentially doing is trying to mask the problem. But what that then creates is an additional problem, uh, which is, like you mentioned, the 70s, you get shortages of goods like gasoline, uh, meaning that there just is not enough available. Uh, what that price rising does, right? An important part of prices rising from an economist's perspective is to make it so that uh, people are going to use less where they can. Now, of course, we can never cut back 100%, but use less where we can. Um, and it's going to try to get more oil on the market. Uh, if you put a cap on that, whether it's the retail price of gasoline, whether it's the price of oil, what that means is you're going to screw up the market trying to react to this, right? You're not going to tell consumers to stop using it, which is what the higher price tells consumers to do. And you're not going to encourage more producers to put more oil or gasoline on the market. And you're going to create this additional problem of shortages, uh, which would mean what we would see at the pump is not high prices, but what we would see is long lines. We would see people lined up uh, because there's stations run out of gasoline and you don't want to not have gasoline. I mean, imagine today, you know, the challenge with electric cars is doing a cross-country trip, right? For short trips, electric cars are actually really good, but am I gonna find a charging station if I'm trying to do a 400 mile trip? Uh, if you have shortages of gasoline, it's actually the same problem. You know, am I gonna find a gas station on my route that has gasoline uh, and I'm able to fill up with? Uh, that's a huge uncertainty. If we have these shortages happening, it causes uh, a lot of problems with uh, uh, that market and doesn't solve that underlying reality. Let's let's just touch on that real quick, though. Um, when you talk about underlying reality, you wrote about it when you wrote about it in your piece that inflation is a messenger. We know all the stimulus we've done. We're we're all let's just be adults here. We all know that America's uh, fiscal house hasn't been in order at the government level for some time now. Uh, but having given all that, you still say inflation is the messenger for all this. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I think. A lot of the problems of inflation are due to two things, which are clo two closely related things. Uh, one is in the early response to, to the pandemic, the Federal Reserve printed a lot of money, and a lot of that money was used to give to households to try to help them out. 
Uh, but what that meant is you have now all this new demand coming online, and a lot of people save that money and are now starting to spend it. Um, that's the reality. Now, whether we thought that was a good idea or not, uh, you know, back in March and April of 2020, uh, that reality exists. Right? The new money has been printed. Uh, the new money has been given to households, and they're now starting to spend it. Um, and and the reality that it creates is this high rate of inflation. Um, and so there's no way to kind of put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, the Federal Reserve now is slowly trying to do what they can to put the genie back in the bottle, which is to raise interest rates and do a few other things. Uh, but uh, that's not something they can do instantaneously. But you absolutely cannot put the genie back in the bottle of consumers having more money, uh, both due to the stimulus, but also just having not spent a lot of money in 2020 of having saved money. And now people are coming out and spending it. And that's going to affect prices, can affect the price of gasoline. It's going to affect the price of housing. Uh, it's going to affect the price of groceries as people start to spend all this money and feel more confident about their own economic situation. And uh, that is the reality. Inflation is just telling us that that's the reality. And so anything like a price control to try to stop inflation is just going to be, as I think I said, shooting the messenger. Uh, it's going to be masking what's, what is the reality. So uh, tell us, those folks like us who don't have the background on it and can't read all those fun fancy tables and charts and such, what should we be watching for in the news cycle coming up? We know inflation is out there. We know the interest rates are going to go up a couple times over the summer, probably. We know we have an election year, so there's going to be more buzzwords than probably policy. What should the average person be listening for, both from the politicians and from the policy people, going forward in the next couple of months that should perk their ears up when it comes to the economy? Yeah, I think it's it's challenging for someone out there. At, with, there's numbers that come out every week, right? Here's some new data. Here's some new data. Certainly, we want to be watching that consumer price index I mentioned, and that hopefully that will start slowing down soon. That'll be, that'll be an indication that what the Federal Reserve is doing is actually having an effect uh, if that rate of price increase starts slowing down. Um, there are other, if we want to get into a little bit of the weeds, there are some other measures of inflation. Uh, one that I like and the Fed likes as well is called the, the, uh, the PCE. In particular, one, uh, the, which is the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. It's similar to the CPI, but it's a little different. And importantly, there's a measure of it that takes out the, the extremes, the high and the low prices, and just looks at those in the middle. Yes, yeah, so I think what the average family should look for as, as the data comes out, there's new data that's coming out every week. We'll get some new inflation data pretty soon. There'll be inflation data every month. Certainly, want, we want to watch that inflation number to see if that starts to slow down. Uh, right. If the Federal Reserve, what they're trying to do to slow down the rate of growth of money and slow down the economy, that's intended to lower prices. So hopefully soon we should start seeing that have an effect. And the consumer price index, when that's released every month, that that shouldn't be increasing as fast. Uh, but there are other measures of inflation that people might look to. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank actually doesn't look at the CPI very closely. They look at another one called the personal consumption expenditures. They call it the PCE. Uh, it's a little bit different, but but that's another one that we'll want to watch to see if that's slowing down. Uh, but certainly we also want the other thing we want to be paying attention to. And I think the average person should think about is the potential downside of the Fed trying to bring inflation under, under control is it could create an economic downturn. It could create more unemployment. It could make us be in a recession. This is their, this is the danger of doing this and doing it too quickly. So I think that's, you know, Certainly in someone's own life, they're going to know, you know, if they've lost their job. But I think is, if we're trying to watch what's going on with the overall economy, uh, we've had very strong job growth over the past year and a half. Uh, you know, as we 
take off the restrictions during the pandemic as people start spending money. We've had very strong job growth. If that starts to slow down, uh, that is a worry that we that the Fed is perhaps overcorrected. I don't think they've done it quite yet, but if we watch over the next six months or so, uh, you know, watch those two numbers, right? Is unemployment or employment growth slowing down? And are we getting prices under control? Uh, the big worry is that what they're doing won't stop the prices from going up and it will slow down the economy. That would be the worst of all worlds. That's again, getting back to the 1970s, what we call stagflation. And sometimes people have been throwing that word around now too, but stagflation means that you have the worst of all worlds, which is high inflation, and you have a poorly performing economy in terms of employment and terms of economic growth. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, we've still had pretty good economic growth. The first quarter didn't look so good. Uh, so people are now starting to worry uh, as the Fed is trying to slow down the inflation, are they going to create a recession on top of that, um, which which is absolutely a possibility. Yeah, Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, great stuff today. Really appreciate your insight. Uh, we're going to have you back, but until we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, your writing in a couple different places. Uh, let them know how they can get to Conway, Arkansas if they want to come a visit in. Uh, especially for football season. It's a darn fine, nice place, small college campus, taking a football game. We've done that a time or two over the years. Let folks know where they can follow you until we see you again, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm pretty active on there trying to post data. Um, uh, so you can find me. My handle is J-M-H-O-R-P. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, I also blog for a blog called economistwritingeveryday.com. Uh, we got seven economists that write for that, and we each write once a week. So there's some fresh content every day. I write on Wednesdays, uh, but all the economists who write for that are great and have a lot of different different perspectives on the economy. So check out economistswritingeveryday.com. And I think those are the those are the main places you can find me. I'll, anywhere else I am, I'll link to from my Twitter. <laughs> well, and uh, we always appreciate uh, folks from the Young Voices Stable. They always have great people, and you are one of them, sir. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much for the time today, and uh, appreciate your time. Talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you for all the great questions. Have a good yes, day. Yes, sir. Thank you. about Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Wanted to update a couple of stories we've been covering on Hertel real quickly. We talked about uh, Finland and Sweden probably are going to join NATO. We talked about some of the background a couple of days ago. We've been talking about it in light of Russia's ridiculous, illegal war of aggression in Ukraine. Finland and Sweden have now officially requested to join NATO. Uh, the leaders of Finland and Sweden have announced they back their countries applying to join NATO in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is from Reuters. The move changes decades of Finnish policy towards the Cold War era military alliance, and it upends more than two centuries of Swedish neutrality. Sweden has avoided all military alliance, but like Finland, has also grown closer and closer to NATO. The decision stand as Major's rebuke to President Vladimir Putin, who sent troops into Ukraine in February as part to prevent NATO enlargement. Well, that's completely failed because now NATO is going to get bigger. And it's all because of Vladimir Putin. Good job. Uh, another story we've been covering. We had our friend Connor Duffy on last week. If you missed that interview, make sure you go back and listen to it. Very popular interview. People loved it. Talked about the very historic uh, elections in, in Ireland 
but we also talked about Northern Ireland and it's got a big old mess. Um, something that we talked about on that interview, the DUP may not enter into the agreement that has now happened. Uh, this is from the BBC. Uh, the second largest party, the Democrat Unionist Party, the DUP, is currently refusing to take part in government unless Northern Ireland protocol created under the UK's Brexit agreement is removed or replaced. We talked about this with Connor. Uh, unionists object to the protocol because by imposing checks on goods passing from mainland Britain to Northern Ireland, it treats the latter differently from the rest of the UK. Under the terms of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, that's the agreement that ended the Troubles, devolution can operate only if both unionist and nationalist communities representatives agree. This means Northern Ireland is likely to enter a new period of uncertainty, possibly leading to new elections. We talked about what a hot mess Northern Ireland is, something to keep an eye on. So two stories we've been following. Quick updates, more heard tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, we love food, we love local media. And we love to end our show on a good note or a happier note or a lighter note. So this here story checks all three of them boxes. Let's go down to Denton County, Texas. Uh, the Cross Timbers Gazette. Uh, everyone has that one friend who lights up any room simply by being there. Their personality is infectious. Their laugh is loud and joyous. Everyone wants to be around them. And it really doesn't seem as if they've never met a stranger. For Argyle resident Nathan Harvey and so many others, that person was Ronaldo Jimenez. And this piece was written by Steve Gamble, by the way. Good job, Steve. Harvey felt like he was the odd man out when he finally met Jimenez in 2004. As the story goes, he and his wife Evelyn were from Louisville Lake with friends when a few of them recognized Jimenez in a nearby boat. They asked me to get closer, and that's when I met him. We got to talking and realized we both worked for FedEx office in Plano, the same building, no less. But somehow we never met, Harvey said. He was just a really nice guy who had friends everywhere. Didn't really matter where he went we built this great friendship almost immediately but sadly jimenez passed away in march 2015 from an undiagnosed heart aneurysm leaving behind his wife amber white a daughter emma amber was pregnant at the time with their second daughter elena rose for the past seven years harvey and other friends have made it their mission to honor ronaldo's legacy through the ronaldo jimenez memorial foundation that's a 501c3 charitable organization that raises money each year for local families with children facing financial hardships Due to a parent's recent death, to date, the organization has raised roughly $50,000 through annual Memorial Day crawfish boils and other generous donations throughout the year. They raised money to help Amber and her girls that first year, and it's grown ever since. That includes this year, where they raised $15,101 for Lake Dallas mother who, similar to Amber, had a child and another on the way when she lost her husband in a car crash. This year's event could pull in as many as 300 attendees. The location and beneficiary have not yet been determined, but it will likely be held at the VFW in Lake Dallas and benefit a family from the Argyle area. Quote, we have six board members, four of whom are officers, and we don't take a salary or anything like that, Harvey said. All of the money we raise goes to that person and their family. That's what's so special about it. It's certainly a rewarding feeling to know that we are doing something good in his name. We want to set a new record this year. The idea for the crawfish boil was originally Ronaldo's. Roe, as he was affectionately known and called, had just hosted one on the lake a few months before he met Harvey. At the time, he wanted to make it an annual thing to bring friends and family together. Quickly grew from 30 to 40 people to well over 200 in the years that followed. But Jimenez's ultimate goal, which he shared with Harvey, 
was to make it a charitable event. We were putting them on for free the entire time. And I just remember him saying, how awesome would it be to make this a charitable thing? All we can ask for in return is that they give us a donation. It was a great idea, but before he could do it, Ronaldo died and his death devastated all of us. This is Harvey talking. Harvey said he got together with friends to pitch Ronaldo's idea and suggested they run with it immediately. The event is always a wildly fun event with live music and, of course, the great food. They accept donations leading up to and during the event, which also includes a silent auction. Every dollar contributes to the charitable causes as Harvey and the other hosts selflessly cover the event costs to maximize the level of donations. After a few years of successful events, Harvey made the foundation an official nonprofit in 2021. They've since moved from the lake to the VFW in Lake Dallas to accommodate enough people. Amber is our chief financial officer, and Ronaldo's parents come to the event every year without fail. Harvey said they are so appreciative that we do this and carry on their son's name. It means a lot to so many of us. He added, my ultimate goal is to keep it growing and then let his daughters take it over when they're old enough. To learn more about the Ronaldo Jimenez Memorial Fund, you can get involved and where to donate to the family needs. And if you're in the Denton County, Texas area, probably want to go to it. Nothing wrong with a good crawfish boil. You can visit their Facebook page, TRJMF. We will link it in the show notes. Great story. Good write-up in the local paper. Well done to everybody involved. That's how you memorialize a good man and a friend when they pass. Plus, you got to eat. If you've never had a crawfish boil, a proper one, go find one. They're awesome. That'll do it for Herd Tell. Thank you so much. Hope you all had a great weekend. We got an exciting week of shows coming up where we're going to continue to turn down the noise of the news cycle. It's going to get noisier than ever with some of the stuff going on in the world. We're going to be right here with you. It's a partnership. If you ain't listening, we ain't got nobody to talk to, and we appreciate you greatly. Huge week number-wise last week, and it's all because of you folks. Thank you so very much. So until we see you again tomorrow, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope, like these folks in Denton, you're well-fed, and we'll talk to you soon on Hurtel. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.